0: It's the summer of 1958. John MacArthur and several friends were driving across country. It was a quintessential college road trip. John had just finished his first year of college in South Carolina, and he was on his way home for the summer back to Los Angeles.
1: Well, we were coming home after the first year, there were six of us in this uh, little two-door Ford Fairlane car flying down the highway in Alabama. The driver lost control, took the car in the air, basically a single car accident because he was trying to pass somebody and got on the other shoulder. I don't know whether he nodded off or tried to recorrect and come back and set the car into a spin and then eventually it flipped kids stayed in the car nobody had seat belts in those days but all five stayed in the car the car landed on its roof and spun around on its roof without rolling any further the reason it didn't roll any further was my door flew open and when the car rolled over on its roof my door acted like a right-angle brace and kept it from rolling i was then sliding down the highway beside the car i could see it spinning beside me and went about 125 or 30 yards on my back and uh, you know i was still conscious in a state of complete shock but conscious
0: John MacArthur was just 19 years old at the time, and he should have died on that Alabama highway. Uh, my back literally was
1: raw down to the bone because you know you're going fast down the asphalt highway. But I had no broken bones, and I stood up and walked off the highway, and and I realized I was alive. And I looked at the kids, and they started crawling out of the car. And on uh, the front, I still had my shirt and pants and my belt. On the back, nothing, but asphalt all embedded in there and they got me they took me um, in a car a guy in a car took me to Birmingham which is like a hundred miles away to put me to take me to the hospital and I got in there and they they didn't know what to do with all that stuff inside my back and uh, they decided to try to scrape it out and it was such a horrific agony that they stopped And then they decided to lay strips of what they called furacin, which is a healing agent for burns, all through my back. And they wrapped me like a mummy. I had it on my elbows, my hands, my shoulders, my knees. And they wrapped me like a mummy and said, you know, we're shipping you to California. And so it was all wrapped. And then when I got to California, I was in for more pain because they decided that that was a bad thing to do. So they decided to tear all those strips of stuff that were in my flesh out. It was pretty horrific stuff. And I had to lie on my bed and my stomach for about three months and let that all heal. At the end of which, I I really was ready to do whatever God wanted me to do. And I knew by then I was gonna preach and teach.
0: Lots of preachers have experienced the threatening side of God's providence in their call to ministry. You think of Luther in a lightning storm, Pharaoh imposing on Calvin the judgment of God if he were to leave Geneva, the Apostle Paul getting kicked off his horse on the way to Damascus, j in Alabama. ten years after that fateful road trip, John MacArthur was installed as pastor of Grace Community Church. In this episode, we explore that decade in the middle, and we'll even go back to his childhood and find out how God prepared John to preach and equipped him for a lifetime of ministry. And we're going to see some lessons that John's story contains for any aspiring expositor. So if you're listening right now, and wondering if God is preparing you to be a preacher, join us as we tell the MacArthur origin story. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master Seminary. And this is the MacArthur Center podcast, Season 1, The Expositor, The Life and Preaching of John MacArthur. In the MacArthur family, there are generations of preachers. If you were to put a strand of MacArthur DNA under the microscope, you'd probably see a sermon outline or two.
1: Uh, my grandfather, Harry MacArthur. Um, Harry was basically a Canadian guy. He, he grew up in a railroad family. The, my great great grandfather drove the first locomotive on pei prince edward island and my grandfather wound up in calgary as a telegrapher for the canadian pacific railway he was saved obviously because his his wife's father was a famous pastor in prince edward island and their parents were had pastoral ministry in scotland so i mean it was a long line of faithful ministry My grandfather came to Los Angeles to go to the Bible Institute of Los Angeles many years ago, and um, so that was my grandfather. He pastored a number of churches in Southern California, did a lot of work with what was called boys' clubs, faithful guy, died relatively young of cancer, Um, but he left the same legacy to my father that he left to me, a a legacy of faithfulness. So a long line of preachers. Yeah, starting in Scotland and then Canada and then down here, yeah, five generations.
0: Of course, you don't need to be the son of a preacher to become one, but you do need a mentor. John MacArthur had that in his father. Here is John speaking at Jack MacArthur's memorial service about his dad's profound influence in his life.
1: He would say to me early on, of course, he wrote in my first Bible when I told him I was going to preach, preach the word. And then he would drum into my head, don't ever go into a pulpit unprepared. If you're going to say
0: this is what God said, make sure it's what he said. And to help mentor this budding preacher, Jack MacArthur employed an old friend, a mad professor of sorts.
1: Dr. Charles Feinberg. And he was the dean at Talbot Seminary. And Feinberg... um, was a scholastic of the highest order he he knew 35 languages he he studied to be a rabbi um he could handle the word of god master of hebrew and more importantly his his view of scripture was just exactly correct airtight um faithful expositor of scripture and very very disciplined um and for all the benefits that I received from my father, uh, I needed more discipline in my life. And Feinberg, when I went to seminary at Talbot, Feinberg provided the mental discipline and the discipline to the duty and the task of ministry that, that I really needed. My dad just said, you, you need to be under him. So he actually called Dr. Feinberg and said, I'm, I want to send my son. And I want you to, I want you to take him under your wing, and he, they knew each other obviously. Take him under your wing, and uh, and do make him into an expositor. So Feinberg took that personally, and I became very close friends with both his sons, John Feinberg and Paul Feinberg, who are well-known theologians. Uh, Paul's with the Lord. He was a very close friend all through seminary. You know, I knew the Feinberg family. I was in the home, so uh, he had a huge influence on my life while I was at Talbot. In terms of fidelity to Scripture, discipline, precision.
0: We know he could critique you as a developing preacher. How did he encourage you? Um, <laughs> well, I wouldn't
1: say that, that he sort of naturally encouraged people. He basically told you what you needed to do. Like, don't ever do that again. Or, that was awful. So his form of encouragement um, was blunt, but that's okay. You know, I didn't need the hearts and flowers. I needed the stick, I needed the rod, and he delivered it. When I needed it, he called me into his office on a number of occasions and expressed his disappointment with me in no uncertain terms, because I think he, he had some expectations for me that when I didn't meet those expectations, uh, he, he wanted me to know that. And I've often said, you know, as old as I am now, there's still a sense in which I hear the echo of those disappointments all these many, you know, 60 years later, because they were so embedded in me at the time.
0: 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul tells Timothy, his disciple, that what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what Jack MacArthur and Charles Feinberg did. They taught John how to understand the Bible, and then they showed him how to explain it to others. And perhaps most importantly, they modeled faithful, effective ministry. They lived lives that John MacArthur wanted to follow. You see, it's not enough to teach a man to preach. Men called to the ministry need to meet the qualifications of an elder laid out in 1 Timothy 3 1 through 7 and Titus 1 verses 6 through 9. A preacher in training's first priority should be his personal holiness. Pastors need pastors who will show them how to live the life of a minister and help them watch their life and doctrine closely. That's lesson one from the MacArthur Plan for aspiring preachers. Make sure faithful pastors affirm that you really are called to ministry. Then have that pastor or other pastors mentor you as you prepare for the ministry. There's another requirement for preaching that MacArthur has in spades passion. I learned the importance of passion from Dr. Alex Montoya. He literally wrote the book on the subject. It's called Preaching with Passion. He taught several classes I took at the Master Seminary. He's a fiery Hispanic man who can switch between English and Spanish in the middle of a sermon. He has a rich, gravelly voice, sharp eyes, and an extremely impressive mustache. He's the kind of professor who believes that there is such a thing as a bad question. After lecturing to a group of doctoral candidates at the seminary, he joined me in my office to talk about John MacArthur and passionate preaching. So doc, I got to talk to you about preaching with passion. You know, some have said that passion is a personality thing or maybe even a cultural thing. You know, some guys have it, some guys don't, it's in your blood Uh, What are your thoughts on passionate preaching? Is it something for
2: all preachers? Most of the homileticians, as you you read their books, um, Lloyd-Jones, Jerry Vines, John Broadus, on his treatise on preaching, all of them stress the importance of preaching with passion, the importance of energy and emotion. And uh, earnestness in preaching is an essential quality when it comes to uh, delivering the message. So it's really a non-negotiable, if you want to be an effective preacher, to have a high degree of passion. Talk to us a little bit about the young MacArthur, his preaching. I've heard you say it set
0: the San Fernando Valley on fire. What are your thoughts on the MacArthur origin story? What makes him the preacher that he was and the preacher he is today?
2: What's interesting, Ike, when I began seminary at Talbot 1868, he was on staff at Talbot as a, um, like a representative, and I, I first heard him preach at Talbot Seminary for the first time. And impressive because he, he embodied the stuff that we spoke about earlier a passion, preaching with authority, energetic, um, strong strong expositor and uh, kind of preaching outside, outside the box.
0: Energy. Few words better describe John MacArthur's preaching, especially in those early years.
2: He speaks at a fast, fast pace. I have heard him preach for 60 minutes nonstop, almost like without taking a breath and not making you tired, not, you know, you you follow with him
0: just to give you a little taste. Listen to this clip from a John MacArthur sermon in 1974, just five years after he came to Grace Church.
1: That's why you can't be justified by your own works, because you can't do what you ought to do by your own works. For what you ought to do is give God all the glory and none to yourself, and that eliminates the possibility of getting all wrapped up in what you do.
0: Of course, to be passionate about ministry You don't just need energy, you also have to understand the value of pastoral ministry. The gospel changes people, and when you see that happen, you become passionate about proclaiming it. During his college years, MacArthur saw up close the gospel transform a broken life, and he was never the same. Ian Murray tells that story in his wonderful biography of John MacArthur, servant of the Word and flock, instead of bothering Mr. Murray, I asked Paul Twist, Professor of Bible Exposition at the Masters Seminary, to read this story from Mr. Murray's book
3: during a football luncheon in which he received an award. John used the occasion to speak of his faith in Christ. One of his hearers asked him if he would visit a seventeen year old girl named Polly whose spinal cord had recently been severed in an accident. John went to the hospital to see the girl who would remain paralyzed for life. And her first words to him were, I'd kill myself if I could. I have no reason to live. Not knowing what else to do, John recalls, I started into a presentation of the gospel. It's not what happens to your body that matters, Polly. It's what happens to your eternal soul. You're going to live forever somewhere. God can bring joy into your heart even now if the issue of your soul is taken care of. Would you like to hear about how that can happen? Her heart was open to listen. After prayer and conversations on several occasions, she was able to say, You know, John, in some ways, I'm glad this accident happened. If it hadn't, I would never have met Jesus Christ. This early experience in pastoral work had a profound influence on John himself. After that exposure to the power of the gospel, I thought, this is all I want for my life. Nothing else even comes close in significance.
0: There's not a lot of books that you need to read twice. But for pastors, Charles Spurgeon's Lectures to My Students is one that warrants a lifetime of rereading. In that book he talks about the all-absorbing desire for the ministry. In a famous section this is what he says, in order to know a true call to the ministry there must be an irresistible overwhelming craving and raging thirst for telling others what God has done to our own souls. If any student in this room, Spurgeon says, could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He is not the man in whom dwells the Spirit of God in its fullness. For a man so filled with God would be utterly weary of any pursuit but that for which his inmost soul pants. Spurgeon identified the first sign of God's call to the ministry as an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. Now, don't misunderstand Mr. Spurgeon. He's not saying you go into the ministry because you're incompetent or you're sick of your job. You go into the ministry because you have an insatiable desire to pursue the work that God has called you to do in a singular way. This passion is what we're talking about and it's the prerequisite to ministry. 1st Timothy 3 1 says if any man desires the work of an overseer, a pastor, an elder, he desires a good thing. You see, desire is the starting point. Passion is the key but strong mentors and passion don't fully explain MacArthur's call to ministry or how effective he is to get the full story you have to understand something else about MacArthur he is curious and I mean feline level curiosity he likes to know stuff at his house, there's a famous chair that always has a stack of books next to it. And of course, theology books account for much of the stack. But there's also biographies and history books and business books. He prefers the non-fiction section of the bookstore. And in some ways, this is where that curiosity was trained. But so much of it comes naturally. Here's John talking about curiosity Nearly killing baby MacArthur, and I—I I, I
1: love to see what things would do if I did this or that to them. Or uh, I mean, I—I I don't know. One time, my, my little sister was, uh, my little sister Jeanette was uh, in the in her little playpen in the kitchen. It was really cold, and she kept saying, "I'm cold, I'm cold." She was about three, and I was about five or six, and and uh, so I took the pillows off the couch and put them in the uh, in the uh, stove in the oven. I didn't know. I just stuffed them in the oven and turned the oven on. <laughs> and, of course, um, uh, when I could smell them, I figured they were warm enough to put in her little playpen so she could get warm. And I took them out, and they were uh, on fire on the back. Ooh. And I, when I pulled them out and realized that, I it just kind of flipped them, and they landed inside the playpen. And so I, my mother says that I went in the bedroom. It was early in the morning, and they were in the bedroom. I said, you better get up because Jeanette's on fire. Oh. and my mom's jaw dropped and my dad says what are you talking about but having lived with me for six years they realized there could be some truth to the <laughs> statement and they came bolting out to the kitchen and sure enough these pillows are going up in smoldering flame and they grabbed her out of there and, and I don't know I, I was really just trying to
0: help the baby was fine by the way, the story illustrates something about the curious. They want to figure things out, they want to get to the bottom of everything. The curious are never satisfied with surface answers, they're explorers, problem solvers. Curious people are interested in all kinds of things, and that often makes them interesting people. It also makes them tremendous students of the scriptures. This is why MacArthur loves getting into the details of the biblical text. Proverbs 25, two says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Curiosity is kingly, and there's no such thing as an incurious expositor. Strong mentors, passion, curiosity. These are the necessary ingredients for a lifetime of fruitful expositional ministry. But there's one more aspect in the MacArthur recipe for ministry success. To understand truly what makes MacArthur,
4: MacArthur,
0: you have to know this. The dude is a
4: jock. John MacArthur is a great athlete. He was a college football player um, of renown, and, you know, the Rams were wanting to get him to come out for, for training camp.
0: If you don't recognize it, that's the distinct voice of Dr. Stephen J. Lawson, pastor, author, preaching phenom, and dean of the Doctor of Ministry program here at the Master's Seminary.
4: He's just a great athlete and his eye to object coordination is tremendous. And so he's just a natural at whatever he does. And he played great golf in those days and he could kill the ball. I mean, he's he got strong arms and big hands and strong upper body. And I mean, he could just flat smack a golf ball and it would go a long way. And I would be so excited for him. And so I was kind of like Barnabas for him, son of encouragement. You know, I would just, hit hit a great shot. And, and I, I soon realized, you know, I think my ministry, this may be my only calling in life, is just to encourage John MacArthur on the golf course and make him happy. He'll preach better if I can make him happy on the golf course.
0: When John MacArthur was growing up, he played every sport. He ran track and cross-country. He played baseball, basketball, and football. Those experiences shaped him, and they shaped his preaching ministry. He's wildly competitive. Decades later, he still gets mad about losses during college. Here's an example, a story he told during a 1996 sermon, nearly four decades after he was a college athlete.
1: I remember when I was a student in college. I had a friend. We were in the Orange County Invitational track me 35 colleges and universities, and we had an opportunity to to win because we had a fairly good team, relay team. I ran second man, it's because it works like this, first man gets a lead, second man loses it, you have two to make it up. <laughs> so I ran second man, and our first guy went out and we he ran a great leg, and he came in and we made a perfect baton pass in the lane, and uh, between the lines, and I blew out of there, and frankly, I ran the best leg I'd ever run in my life, and I came in holding first place. And we were really where we needed to be because we had a great third leg, my friend, Ted, and we had a blur for an anchor. And if we could just hold close, we could win it. I made the pass to Ted, perfect pass again, and he was still in the lead when we left, when he left the passing lane, and we were really excited. The place was screaming and roaring, all these people filling the stands, and Ted went down Turned the curve, came down the back stretch, stopped, walked off the track and sat on the grass. Race was over. We were done. Our great anchor never got a baton, never ran. I was so stunned and always verbal and always, you know, sort of the leader, I just bolted across the grass to the middle of the field where he was sitting and I said, what happened? I thought he must have torn his hamstring or popped a Panteras or gotten spiked or whatever, I'll never forget what he said. He looked up and said to me, I don't know, I just didn't feel like running. (sighs) You know, you you can hardly contain yourself (laughs) at a moment like that. You know, your first reaction is to take off your track shoe and bury it, you know, in his back. (sighs)
4: It's
1: absolutely inconceivable.
0: John MacArthur's oldest son, Matt, sees this connection. I went to see him and his wife Kelly recently, and we had a conversation about Matt's dad. I don't think people understand MacArthur if they don't understand he's a jock. There's a Jordan Jean thing there. You think so? I think so, yes. He's a jock. That's part of the MacArthur experience. And if you don't get that, if you're not yeah, a I think that's you're, if you're a book nerd, if you don't understand, you know that sports are a thing that God gave to people. You don't totally understand MacArthur in his fullness unless you have at least a category for athletics.
3: I I I, I would agree one hundred percent. I mean, it was it was church and sports for us. Yeah, that was it. That's what we did, um, and it was great. I I, I uh, no, I think there's there's a lot of truth in that. If you didn't compete at the highest level of, of something along the way, yeah, you wouldn't be eighty-one years old. Still grinding away every week, you know, trying to move uh, the ball down the field, so to speak.
0: Now, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, what is Duncan talking about? You don't have to be an athlete to preach. That's not one of the qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy 3. Well, smart guy, you're absolutely right. You don't have to play football or lacrosse or ping pong to be a preacher. You can have terrible object-to-eye coordination, as Dr. Lawson calls it, and still preach like Charles Spurgeon. But what I am saying is this, you better have drive and a competitive nature. You need a lot of the Apostle Paul when he compared ministry to an athletic competition. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Without that drive, that refusal to give up or give in, ministry is going to beat you down. So, should you, dear listener, be a preacher? Well, here are a few questions to keep in mind. First, do you have a mentor? Someone who can affirm that yes, you are called to ministry and help you examine your life and doctrine? Second, Do you love the Bible and ministry to people? Without that passion, ministry will exhaust you. Third, are you curious? Does God and his creation interest you? And not just superficially, but are you curious about the details? Do you have a thirst for knowledge that's inquenchable, a desire to know the deep things of God? Because if you're indifferent, your ministry will be as well. Fourth and finally, are you a jock? The devil, the world, and your flesh are out to get you, and you better be willing and able to punch back. If you're not, the pulpit is not for you. Thanks for listening to Episode 3 of The Expositor. Come back next time when we talk about the MacArthur Style. If you've never thought of MacArthur as a style icon, you need to tune into Episode 4 to find out what he has in common with the YouTube pastors who dress like teenage hype beasts. This will be our most controversial episode. The MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching podcast is produced by Corey Williams and Jeremy Vuolo. Cody Signore, editor of Unparalleled Talents, put this episode together. Special thanks to Alex Montoya and Stephen Lawson, two fiery preachers that have served as mentors and friends. Also, special thanks to Matt and Kelly MacArthur for hosting me for an afternoon. For more information about the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about being trained for a lifetime of expositional ministry, go to the Master Seminary website, TMS. Dot .edu
2: atd out